0: And today I'm starting a week-long experiment with something I'm going to be calling breakdown briefs, at least for this week. And the basic idea is that there's a lot of stuff that I think you guys come to the breakdown for. Part of it is great guests who are looking at not only the world of Bitcoin, but about macro and geopolitics and even cultural shifts that help explain the context that Bitcoin operates in. But then there's also the day-to-day analysis of what's actually happening in this industry right now. So I'm going to try for the next week to have, at the beginning of each episode, a brief, which is going to be three quick stories, a what and a why for each story, why it matters, followed by that day's either featured guest or the featured topic, if I'm just doing a deep dive on a topic myself. So with that, let's dive into the first ever breakdown brief. Story number one. Over the weekend, it came out that Brave had been redirecting with a Binance ref code. So basically what happened was, a user on Twitter called Kryptonator saw that when you type Binance.us into the Brave browser, it automatically added a ref link. And this obviously was not a great look for this company, which is all about privacy, to automatically add something to a user's feed. Brendan Ike, the CEO of that company, quickly came to Twitter and said, hey, we made a mistake, and explained their policy on using reference links as a way to help support and keep the company afloat. And explained the whole logic, but also made it clear that they didn't think that you should ever have it be automated. I think that the why that matters, this wasn't a big dust-up, it wasn't something that had everyone up in arms per se, it's more that there's a reminder for any company in this crypto space, if you are trying to establish or challenge the established order, you have to be so much better than the incumbents when it comes to things like user transparency and trust, even if it feels unfair relative to everything out there. Obviously, I think Brendan did the right thing coming to address this quickly, but the worst thing that you can be in crypto is reactive if you're a company that's trying to be better than the best. Just another great reminder of that. Number two, let's talk about the disconnect between crypto and Wall Street. And I think this one is really important. The what of the story. Bitcoin is obviously has had over the course of this crisis, inflation as a key thesis. This was most notably embodied in. Paul Tudor Jones coming into the space and saying that Bitcoin was an important store of value, a hedge against what he called the great monetary inflation. That has gotten a lot of eyeballs, a lot of institutional investors interested in Bitcoin as an asset for the first time, or maybe coming around to it in a way that they weren't before. The problem is that bond markets are not pricing in inflation. Bond markets seem to believe that we are not looking to some sort of hyperinflationary scenario, but quite the opposite. Right now, bond markets are pricing in consumer price increases over the next five years of just 1.5%. That is lower not only than the Fed's 2% target, but down 1.8% from September. Basically, in September, the bond markets were pricing in 1.8% inflation. So why does this matter? Well, there's a lot here. Obviously, there is fierce disagreement about these numbers and whether bond markets are right or wrong. And all you have to do is follow Preston Pish to see kind of the counterarguments to this. But I think that the more important point, because again, this is the brief, and so I don't have time to debate all of that here, is that it's a great reminder of why it's important to not get stuck to any one particular narrative. Certainly, the hedge against potential inflation is an important part of the Bitcoin narrative. It's been one of the most resonant parts of the narrative over the course of the crisis with Money Printer Go Burr. However, it is by far, far from the only narrative of Bitcoin. And in fact, as we've seen, police and and governments crack down on legitimate political action. To me, something like the censorship resistance narrative, the making it harder for people to claim funds or freeze funds, seems to be a really important part of the modern story as well. So the why here in this case is a reminder to not get overly attached to any one narrative, but understand the full set of value propositions that something like a Bitcoin offers in the modern world. Story three in the brief is Z Bellion. So what is Zebelian? Well, Zebelian is a shadowy organization that plays on Gen Z dissatisfaction and funds itself by stealing fiat through a global coordinated cyber attack with the participation of a huge number of members of Gen Z. It also converts that fiat to Bitcoin. If this sounds made up, that's because it is. This is from a 2018 Pentagon war game that was declassified through the Freedom of Information Act. And so why does this matter? Well, I think the interesting thing is to see how the U.S. leadership and political and military establishment viewed Bitcoin at that time. And now it may be, by the way, that in the context of this, this military exercise, Bitcoin was a stand-in for cryptocurrencies writ large, right? It, it might not have been specific to Bitcoin, but just the idea of these digital currencies. And the point is that there is still a really strong focus on them as a vehicle for crime. And I think that has evolved somewhat, but I still think that the vehicle for crime narrative is potentially the most persistent and likely FUD that we will see even going forward. We have right now in America an increasingly intense political divide between the protest crowd and the quote-unquote law-and-order crowd, and that law-and-order language is waiting to be deployed for other reasons. So I think it's just a good reminder of potential FUD that we might face in the future, and really interesting, no matter what, that this was a scenario that was cooked up in the Pentagon in 2018. So that is the first ever breakdown brief. Let me know what you guys think of it. Let me know what you guys want to hear about going forward. Like I said, we're going to try this all week, and if we have good feedback, we'll keep doing it. But for now, let's shift our attention to today's featured guest, Jake Hanrahan, founder of Popular Front. We are currently in the second week of protests around America and increasingly around the world in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd. These protests have become extraordinarily politically contentious as well as extraordinarily widespread. And the role of media in this sort of wide-scale civil unrest is an important part of the story to tell as well. So today I'm excited to be joined by Jake Hanrahan. Jake is the founder of Popular Front, which is a popular podcast and media network dedicated to focusing on and reporting about underreported and irregular conflict. That means not just state-to-state warfare or military action, but rebels and advocates and protesters and you name it, but basically conflict situations around the world where people are advocating for something different than the system in power. Jake got his start with Vice. He was an embedded journalist in places like the Ukraine and in Turkey, where he was actually imprisoned for a time. Which is to say that his experience is hard won. In this interview, we talk about his experience last weekend at BLM protests in London, and the disparity between what he saw on the ground and what the police covered. We talk a lot about the Political manipulation, so to speak, or the political capture is probably a better way to put it, of media on both the right and the left and how they drive intentional wedges around issues like this. We talk about some of the other parts of the world where conflict is happening. We talk about his work covering the front lines in Hong Kong last year and what he thinks about that situation. This is not a particularly easy to listen to interview compared to some because it's at the heart or getting at the heart of some of the most challenging and contentious issues of our time. But I thought it was important because Jake represents a new type of media voice, a new type of independent journalistic voice that I believe is essential for us actually escaping the cycles of sort of uncritical analysis that have become too easily a part of our media conversation. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. And more than that, even, I hope that it helps you think about things in new ways, and maybe look to some situations that you hadn't been thinking about before. Now, a couple quick notes. First is that, as with any long interview, this has been edited only very lightly. And second, part of what that means is that the language has been preserved exactly as it was, impassioned as it was. So if you have uh, faint ears, be warned, but hopefully you enjoy this regardless. All right, I am here with Jake Hanrahan. Jake, great to have you. Thanks for having me, mate. So uh, I actually, you know, I don't often do this because I find the podcasts that are kind of like, "Oh, tell me about your background," are often boring. But I think it's actually relevant in this case uh, for people who aren't familiar with your work. Um, so, uh, can you tell me just a little bit about how you got into uh, conflict reporting? I guess, and and in particular, this this idea of a regular conflict reporting.
1: Yeah, man, sure. So um, I'm a I'm a you know independent uh, journalist based in the Midlands in the UK. Um, And I've been covering war and conflict all over the world now for about seven years. Um, Started very early. I was like, what, 24, I think, when I first went and covered war. Uh, And I started with Vice News. So I was, you know, I was a freelancer before then and I was writing about war kind of from Britain. But, you know, just kind of, oh, that's an interesting story there and ringing people up in the country, not doing on the ground reporting, which is what I always wanted to do. And... Long story short, you know, Vice News, when it first started, I was like, oh, I like that because I was already writing bits for Vice, but Vice News was what I liked. I was like, that's everything I like about Vice without the bits I don't like. So I I just kept bugging the guy who became my boss, basically, got a job at Vice News. And yeah, man, spent like five years there just traveling all around the world, covering um, war and conflict. But it was mostly for me, it was like, like you said, like a regular warfare, which is Sounds a bit of a mouthful, but it just basically means like non-state actors. So like militias, paramilitaries, rebel forces, that kind of thing. People fighting against the state or fighting against regular militaries or regular armies or whatever. So, you know, that that to me has always been a little bit more interesting than kind of just getting some official embed with an army. I much prefer to like roll up with like rebels and find out why they're fighting because they're not getting paid often. You know, they, they come from a place of urgency, urgency. Um, and, you know, I I just find that incredibly interesting just in kind of like a human way, especially when it happens in like an urban environment where people are living, and then all of a sudden their town is turned into the conflict zone. That, to me, is so interesting and so important, I think, to report because, you know, people are getting shot up and killed while they're just sitting at home. So, yeah, that's how I started. And then, you know, I quit Vice News um, about three or four years ago when kind of HBO took it over and it got a bit, you know, I, I didn't really like the direction it was going in. And uh, now I run my own platform, man. It's uh, all grassroots, 100% independent. It's called Popular Front. Uh, We have a podcast. We do documentaries, you know, write articles. We've got a magazine coming out, all sorts.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's awesome. I've been following Popular Front, uh, for a while, and you know, I was just telling you before, but this is interesting to me. I think I I share that interest in uh in kind of the lived experience of people who are um in in turbulent situations uh, and who don't know what to make of it. And and part of this for me came from, you know, the the story in America at least after. Uh, after the end of the Cold War, was that, uh, you know, it it was sort of capitalism triumphant and everything was great. And that was, you know, growing up in the 90s, for me, that was the 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 kind of the dominant idea, and then all of a sudden, September 11th happened, and it kind of smashed that open. And you look back around, and actually, the 90s had been the bloodiest decade since the 40s, right? Since World War II, in terms of kind of actual human life. And I think what's so interesting about what what you are covering is that you know irregular conflict has actually, in some ways, become regular conflict. Right where where actual kind of uh, violence happens in the world, it is often, or or perhaps even more often, in these sort of uh, these type of kind of rebel rebel context like you're talking about and, and I really appreciate the the on the ground kind of embed focus. I mean it seems like that's even when you're covering something like uh, these protests going on right now, your interest is in what people who are actually on the ground, be it the protesters, be it the fighters or be it the the civilians who are living around them, actually think and feel outside of what either media or politicians want to tell you they feel is that is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, well, I think I'm not one of these people that's like completely opposed to mainstream journalism. Like mainstream media is a bit of a like boogeyman for a lot of people. I think there's some very mm-hmm. big issues within mainstream media, certainly. And I'm trying to address some of them with Popular Front. But I, I'm not like, you know, I'm not like, oh, all mainstream media is bad. Don't believe what they tell you. It's all controlled by blah, blah. Like there's this kind of a conspiracy theory, you know, and it's not real. But certainly there are elements where, mainstream media especially in the last five years is just failing on an unbelievable level in terms of letting people know what's going on and it's like you said because they're not on the ground as much because of the lack of money they have now there's huge job losses in the journalism industry and you have really stupid like like the the people that have been there the longest who were like you know that need refreshing and getting rid of never really get get got rid of it's always like it's always like the lower, the not lower, but like the the lower paid staff, you know what I mean, which are often the people on the ground. And I mean, let me tell you, when I was working for Vice, you know, literally shoulder to shoulder with rebel fighters as they're fighting a war, you know, in very dangerous places, I was getting paid fuck all, do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. uh, it's quite similar to a lot of places. People are getting paid very little and they get dropped first. And then what's left is just nonsense like, just kind of clickbait and all of that stuff. So I think the mainstream media has failed in the sense of it's been too dependent on its investors and its venture capital funds, like BuzzFeed News, which despite what a lot of people say, did some very, very good work. And we've just seen them kind of collapse because of the other side of the BuzzFeed business, which is just, you know, manufactured nonsense. Um, that was getting a lot of the play and the, the venture capital investment didn't work out. So unfortunately, a load of good reporters lose their jobs and a lot of good reporting doesn't get done. So with popular front it's it 's all like it 's all funded by Patreon and subscriptions on Patreon and merchandise. We sell a lot of merch um and and donations to be honest you know like we have we have people that are just like really like what you 're doing because i I've, I've i've kind of drawn a line in a sand with it. I refuse corporate sponsorship so i 've had a lot of you know it's i, I don 't want to like blow my own horn but the the podcast and everything is very successful now and it 's really flying but we've done that without any help from any corporate nonsense. And people contact me and they're like, you know, like Jewel, you know, like Jewel Pods owned by Philip Morris. Now they wanted to sponsor Popular Front. And it's like, no way, I'm not letting some like big corporate monster that has given half the world cancer from cigarettes sponsor my podcast just because it would make me a lot of money. Like that doesn't, to me, that's like against what we're about. Like Popular Front is not like politically biased. The only thing I say we are is like anti-authoritarian always. So whether you're left, right, center, I don't care. Any kind of authoritarian street, we're against that. But otherwise, you know, we're not we're not coming with some like crazy uh, bias of like, oh, the West is all bad or Russia is all bad or, you know, kind of that. So I think people appreciate that. And when there is clear bias, we're very honest about it. We're like, yep, yeah, we think this, you don't have to listen, blah, blah. You know what I mean? So I don't know, a nuanced approach is what I always try and do. And we always say like, no frills, no elitism, which basically just means nothing too fancy and no elitism you don't have to be some like suit you don't have to have a degree I don't have anything I have no qualifications formally so you don't have to be like in the upper echelons of the kind of elite journalism circle which I bumped into a lot with my work when I was working at Vice and other places and I hated it so much so that kind of spurred me on to say to all these like misfits like hey I know you lot like conflict as well and reporting and research come and come and join us. Listen to us. You, you, you've got a place here. It doesn't matter where you're from, what colour you are, what background you're from. Just come here, come to us. And, and that has built like a really beautiful kind of coalition of people. Um, and that that's kind of why it's called Popular Front, you know. A popular Front is people that don't always necessarily agree on all the main points, but they can work something out to come together and work together, right, for, the, for a similar goal. That goal being um, truthful, honest, on the ground reporting as often as possible, And basically just saying piss off to all these kind of elitist people around journalism.
0: Do you find that that perspective perspective. makes it easier for you um, to actually kind of build uh, trust with the, the, the people that you're embedding with?
1: Yeah. And to be honest, it was always, I think, because I'm from a different background to what maybe a lot of people think journalists are like it comes down to a class issue honestly which is very a very boring and overplayed thing to talk about i think but it is relevant <laughs> like so i'm not you know i'm not from a rich family none of my family are rich you know i'm not from like kind of journalist people i'm not from media people just normal people you know what i mean with normal jobs in normal places you know i grew up on a council estate for part of my childhood it's not like you know we didn't know money so i think you immediately you kind of have a little bit of a different sense of the world when you come from that kind of background you know same way as i can't integrate and like make myself blend in mm-hmm. with certain elite people because it's clear that i'm just not like them which that's fine doesn't mean i'm not their friend or whatever but you know what i'm saying it it's very clear that there's differences there right in your upbringing mm-hmm. it's it's unbelievably obvious in england anyway i don't know about the rest of the world but in the uk it's it's kind of sticks with you so that was always like at first i thought that would be a struggle so i was at vice i watched some of my older docs and i can even tell that i'm trying to like speak more clearly like dumb down my accent this is when i was younger at vice and i really regret Mm -hmm. that because it's like be who you are and i guess being in the field i realized that actually it was kind of helpful because you would meet these like rebel lads or these you know militants or whatever And often they're from like poor backgrounds. They're from nothing or they're in the war and they're they're not looking to talk to someone that's very uptight. They're looking to have a laugh and they want to push you and see how far they can push you and you push them back. And, you know, they want to see that you're not scared of them. And I don't mean scared of the guns or the war. They want to see that you're not scared of who they are. You know what I mean? So I feel like that actually ended up helping because I'm like, I'm turning up to these places and I'm like, mate, I don't give a fuck if you're from wherever. If you take the piss out of me, I'm taking the piss out of you. And that's actually a, a, not a negative. That's a bonding experience. And eventually, I realised these people would be like, "Hey, you're all right. You're just you're just a normal guy. Like, cool. You're a journalist. I didn't expect this. So you know. And it, it sounds a bit cocky, but it was like that. You know. Like often we have people be like, "Oh, you're not how I thought you would be. When we heard a journalist was coming. So that's cool, you know. Um, And there's a lot of conflict reporters just like me as well. Like A lot of people I know get very good access for similar things. They can integrate themselves. They can make themselves liked by people. You know what I mean? So it's not just me. It's nothing special about me at all. But what I'm saying is my experience, I found that to actually be helpful in some ways. Now, it's not very helpful when you're talking to like officials because certain officials they want a lot of like respect and i don't believe in giving people respect for no reason it's like i'm a journalist i'm here to ask you awkward questions i'm not here to play your game sort of thing so it doesn't always work out but yeah man it, for me it helped and with popular front when we first started out it was a bit tricky when we was on the ground because nobody who we were back then but some people recognized me from vice so that wasn't too bad but now i noticed it's gone from oh you're jake from from vice to people will stop me and say, hey, you're Jake from Popular Front. And I love that. It means it's working. It means people are recognising... It's not recognising me. It's recognising the work. Do you see what I mean? So now people mm-hmm, trust mm-hmm. us. We have a lot of enemies because we're very... We're not about like... We're, we're not wishy-washy. You know, we have like some hardcore Chinese communists coming in the thing and saying, you shouldn't talk about the Hong Kong protesters. They're just liberals. They're terrorists. And we just say, yeah, go fuck yourself. You know, you you're a, you're a hardcore communist you like authoritarianism you're scum like and we will be like that we will draw a line in the sand like that some people don't like it and we've lost some older older listeners because of it but who cares like for us it's like no certain things you have to take a stance on that doesn't mean you're biased it doesn't mean you're like lying it just means you're human you know what i mean so yeah people seem to like it mate and it's i don't know it's it's been a shock to me honestly i started as a side project now it's my main focus
0: yeah no it's great. I mean I think uh I want to come back to Hong Kong as well. I, I rewatched the uh Frontliner documentary last night and uh I th- there's some really interesting parallels to uh to even the conversation around the BLM protests but uh, but I want to come back to that but you know when you were talking it kind of reminded me of um You know, so there's obviously been this huge conversation as we were talking about the uh, around the business model of media, and you kind of got at this right, where it's not it's not just hold aside the the um, left or right bias, right, which is a political football in America and probably everywhere else too, but more the like if you actually look structurally at the way that media is funded, it creates this kind of a crisis. And uh, Paul Graham, actually the guy who started Y Combinator last night, he put it really crisply on Twitter. He said something to the effect of. Uh, this idea of being non-biased made sense for newspapers from a from a business model standpoint when your job was to get as many people in a geographical location to subscribe to you as you could right because in any geographical location you have people who are more left people who are more right right so you want to actually be able to speak to everyone you want to be able to be the paper of record for them in internet world it's totally the opposite where what you want is people who uh like again from a pure business model perspective what you want is as many people who think the same way to drive clicks, right? If you're just objective, well, people are just going to naturally sort themselves into uh, into kind of one or the other. Now that, that's a thesis, I think that it's a re- it would be a reasonable position to take that to to bet more on people and uh, and try to prove that wrong. However, I do think that like largely speaking, there's something interesting about that. And you know what's what's cool about Popular Front or what's interesting about Popular Front is that I think that you're seeing uh, this mass movement. I think for for the first time it's. To be really legitimated right now, where people are just take they're basically de themselves from their media outlets and and starting their own thing, right? You've got Matt Tybee, who left Rolling Stone. Uh, mm. Obviously, in tech, you've had these kind of popular newsletters like Strategery for a while that become, you know, one of the most important sources of information. In new industries like Bitcoin and crypto, where we are, you see the independent media apparatus, like podcasts like this, like Peter McCormick's, like Pomps, all growing up right along side the, the major publications, uh, and so I, I think particularly with the type of reporting that you do, that was always a hard spot for for papers. They had to be really committed to that type of coverage to focus on this, right? To to to, mm-hmm. to, to spend resources against it. Definitely. And so it, it, it you know it makes sense that you're finding this this kind of uh, success shifting off and just and, and and accumulating and building the community of people who, for whatever reason, whatever background, think that this is important and want to support it directly.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And I think um, it's, I don't know, it's like, it is a business model, but it's also kind of, you know, what I say, when people say what is popular front, I say it's grassroots, independent conflict journalism. And like, it really is grassroots, because, yeah, it's it's a business model. But At the same time, it's just come organically. Do you know what I mean? I I never expected it to blow up like this. I just Mm -hmm. was very determined and I knew what I wanted to do. And I knew the attitude that I had. And my attitude within myself with journalism was from seeing a lot of problems within the mainstream industry and getting very sick of twisted reporting or there's a very big problem as well, where basically mainstream journalism generally in the UK is kind of liberal centrist kind of vibe right and that's fine that's like what most of the country probably are right but the the mainstream liberal journalists will suddenly tell you you're an activist and not a proper journalist if you deviate any way from their central liberal line so if you go well actually that's you know like for example i'm seeing now like you know journalists that painted themselves as kind of leftist for a while when it was popular and now suddenly being like Save the police. The police are getting hurt in the UK. And it's like, well, why weren't you saying that when people were fighting against the police in wherever? Oh, because our police are good or whatever. And it's like, for you, maybe they're good. In your life, in your London bubble, maybe they're good. But let me tell you, I've got a lot of friends and myself as well, where the police have not been good. Now, that doesn't mean I'm abolished police. I don't mean any society needs a police force, whether you call it that or not. But It cannot carry on like this, is my opinion. Now, all of a sudden, that makes you an activist to these people. It's like, well, I'm not not saying to you you're a liberal activist because you have your views. Do you know what I mean? So why all of a sudden do they want to paint the other side like that? And I think that a lot of people are waking up to that. A lot of people know that just having a different point of view doesn't make you a fucking activist. You can be a journalist and be a human and have an opinion on things so long as you don't let it cloud your work. Do you know what I mean? Every journalist has an opinion on something. Yes, we have to be objective, but 100% objectivity means you don't really seem to feel anything. And a lot of people want to know the feeling of something because that is all part of the human experience, which journalism is not just bullet points. Do you know what I mean? It's not just meant to be bullet Mm -hmm. points, in my opinion. I think it should be about nuance, and I think it should be about kind of discussing and trying to break down these complicated issues and make them simple um, or at least easier to understand you can 't make them simple, but you can make them understandable. so the way to do that is is not to just be like have a have a stick up your ass and be like, well it 's this, this and this, because the government blah blah like you have to say, Well how about this how about why are they doing this? They have their grievances, this, this, and this um and i, I don 't think there's anything wrong with that now that doesn 't mean you suddenly become You know, you've got like Breitbart and Fox News, which in my opinion, I I don't, it's not even journalism. It's just, it's just a a joke, really. Do you know what I mean? It's like anyone that watches that, I think deep down they must know like this isn't journalism. It's just my opinion being reinforced and given back to me or whatever. Um, The same way as if you watch like, uh, I don't know, what's a, like Navarra Media we have in the UK, some absolute trash like hardline communist um propaganda outfit basically now that's when you go too far one way or the other i'm not saying do that i'm just saying be a fucking human being do you know what i mean and people like Mm -hmm. it man people people are like yeah i get it and sometimes they'll say well you shouldn't have done this and i'll be like yeah maybe not maybe you're right admit to your problems and then other times i'm like no you shut up like (laughs) you know what i mean you don't have to take on everything
0: that if you could if you could bottle that lesson uh, for for people on Twitter and sell it as a course, you'd be a rich man. Oh, uh, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I actually, though, you know, so, so you mentioned something about uh, how the protest has been covered in the UK. And I wanted to ask this one of my questions going into this. What is your perception about how these protests are being covered around the world? And, and honestly, actually, let's let's add a different element to this. Why do you think what's your take on why these protests are going global?
1: Whew, well, that's a good question. but yes, I'll A small question, a small yeah. question. <laughs> I'll answer the first part first. So uh, it's, it's relevant as well, because I was at the protest on Saturday in London. So that was the first big, like, organised Black Lives Matter, anti-police violence, solidarity with George Floyd protesters, George Floyd kind of, you know, police killings protest. It was a lot of things, basically. Um, and immediately I saw the media already... Even like BBC, which a lot of problems the BBC has, but they're often quite good with stuff like pointing out what something is. But even they were kind of doing dodgy things where they started talking about coronavirus spreading and then using images from the protests. And I thought, oh, wow, isn't that interesting that they would suddenly do that? Um, But anyway, so the London protests, it was completely peaceful for 90% of the day, right? And you know I was there from start to finish, um so we marched from Parliament square um it's pretty disorganized, but you know there was people dipping in different routes, going for marches down, and it all came to the u s embassy it was all calm there i mean it wasn't calm, it was very heated, but it was it was nonviolent you know. And a lot of black organisers making sure it was non-violent. And I must add as well, like the crowd was completely mixed. It was majority black people, but there was so many white people, Indian people, Chinese, every, every, every race you can think of were coming to say like, hey, this is bad. This is bad. And we're showing solidarity. Now you got a lot of like right-wing kind of trolls Like, why even bother? Our police don't even have guns. They don't shoot black people in England. It's like, firstly, Google the word solidarity. And second, like, you have no idea the actual other issues. I have friends, black friends, that get stopped and searched on their way to... I've got one friend who's like a solicitor. If he's on the way to the gym wearing jogging bottoms and that, he might get stopped and searched. If he's on the way to work, you know, he works as a solicitor. It's it's kind of ridiculous. So there is definitely a problem with stuff like that. Um, But anyway, that was beside the point. Everyone was coming out and saying like, yeah... Look, we're coming here. We're we're supporting it. We're against it. And I went as a journalist, but I felt it myself. You know, I, it, I've got black family members, and it was like, yeah, this is wrong. Why is the police killing an unarmed black man? Why are they so disproportionately killing black men in America? Um, unarmed black men. Like again, the word is disproportionately because people keep bringing up these stats. Disproportionately, that is the important part of it. That's actually the big takeaway you should get from it. Anyway. And, you know, it's like, yeah, of course you're going to come out here and show solidarity. There were old women. There was everyone there. Very nice, very good. Like, it all kind of finished. So we all go back to Parliament Square. I will say some crowd stayed behind and there were some small scuffles with the police at the embassy, but it wasn't like a riot or anything like that. It was just like, ag, the sort of thing you see on a Friday night any t- any time in the UK, right? On a, you know, that level of fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got to Parliament Square And everyone was sat down there just talking, like eating, like because it was done now, people smoking cigarettes and whatever. And this huge storm come out of nowhere. It was like biblical, man. It was like lightning, thunder, like big forks of lightning across the sky. It was like mad. Rain just came down immediately, you know, like movie rain, like vertical, just everyone was soaked. (laughs) And we we all ran, everybody ran, and we ran to like the sides and under this under the kind of – there's a bit where there's shops nearby – And they've got like a a shutter across the front so you can kind of get under it away from the rain. And everybody was dispersing up Waterloo Road. I was walking back with a friend. We were leaving. And then all these um, bully vans, uh, uh, like riot vans, you know, slang bully vans, but riot vans turned up, I don't know, like 10 maybe. And then there was about over 100 police were just forming a line and clearly like revving themselves up, getting very like, aggravated um or at least like kind of you know getting themselves ready and i was like what what are they doing looked around and there was nothing like people were just walking there's a few lads on bikes the crowds had largely dispersed because like i said it was pissing it down with rain um and then they just charged I, i've honestly if i hadn't seen it with my own eyes mate i would not have believed it happened like this it was so weird they just charged and everyone was, like, screaming, like, what? Like, like, there was loads of young girls nearby because they just, you know, like I said, it was a peaceful protest with all different people. And, like, everyone just started running. The the sirens went on. And they ran to the middle of the road near Parliament. And they just formed a, you know, like, a formed a human chain. And we're like, no one's allowed past. And everyone's like, what? Like, we're trying to leave. And I'll tell you how bad it was. There was a photographer, this black guy, was stuck on one side and his bag was left near the bollard next to me. And he's like, let me through, I need my bag, I'm a photographer. And they're like, you're not moving anywhere. He's like, I'm pressed, like had the cards. And I, you know, I had to pick up the bag and, and give it to him. It was like, what is going on? Like, so it was very confusing. Then the police, we have this technique called kettling, where they just keep pushing you, pushing you, pushing you back. And they pushed everybody up until like it got into this, like maybe 30, 30 by 30 meter square between two roads around the cenotaph. Um, And it's still raining. There's maybe 200, like, protesters are there. I'm there in the middle of it at the front. And the protesters for about three hours were saying, just move, let us go, and we will go peacefully. There was, like, organised... There were these lads, all black lads as well, like, organised it, telling the younger lads, calm down, don't kick off. That's what they want. We'll just wait it out. Police wouldn't leave it. And then they started pushing forward. And people were like, look, stop pushing us. We will leave if you just open the chain and let us leave. Which... They would have. Everybody was trying to go, mate. Like, this was not an orchestrated conflict. Like, this, people were trying to leave. I was trying to leave. You know what I mean? And, yeah, and then they just, the police kept pushing. And after about two hours, lads just started being like, right, sick of it. Bottles started getting thrown. Um, And then one of the police kind of pushed very heavily with his shield. And then it turned into a big fight um I was filming it right in the middle of it you know I got hit by one of the coppers like just I don't know I guess you know I I don't I'm not saying it was like on purpose he just was whacking anybody but it was violent you know what I mean and people were throwing punches and and then it yeah and then the, the clashes broke out all over basically so I know that's a long way of explaining it but it has to be explained that way I witnessed it with my own eyes you know what I mean and people are going like well actually it's these kids kicked off and I'm like no mate I saw what happened And otherwise smart journalists, they're just completely disregarding it. And it's not just me. Like a lot of the young people that were there are saying the same thing. So these liberal journalists mostly have gone for two, three years now saying, believe black people, listen to black people, support black people. Now when the black people are telling them, this is what happened, this is what the police did. And I'm telling them as well as a colleague of theirs, technically, they're all just going, nah, 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 this is how it happened. It's how it's how the police said it happened. That, to me, I would argue then that, well, they want to call us kind of people activists. I'd say, well, you're an activist for the government in that sense because you're disregarding what the people on the ground are saying. Now, I'm not saying everybody at the protest was an angel. Certainly not. There was some bad stuff happened. Some horses got rocks thrown at them. Firstly, you shouldn't have a horse at a protest. That's the police's situation. They bring horses to protest, which I think is disgusting. Uh, a police horse bolted. Um, and a police officer hit accidentally hitting some traffic lights and fell off and she got very hurt, which is all right. Again, right wingers were saying someone threw the woman off the horse. That's not what happened. She, she went into a traffic light by accident. So anyway, so, so the media then is saying like, oh, well, there are riots now in London. Firstly, there were not riots in London. 2011, those were riots. Whole areas getting burnt down, buildings getting burnt down from day till night. Those were riots. These are small clashes with the police. And frankly, I've seen much bigger clashes at football events and even in my own town on Saturday nights. So it's not good, but it's not riots, despite what the tabloids are saying. And from my perspective, at least, I mean, I've been checking online to see, am I wrong? Am I wrong? From my perspective, the police sparked that initial piece of aggravation. Now that that's been sparked, the fire has started and everybody's very angry. And now it is turning into clashes. And already the media is trying to turn it into white versus black. The right-wing media specifically is calling it race riots, race wars, Mate, I'm telling you now, I got grabbed by a policeman and three black boys pulled me off of him to stop me getting pulled away. And we're saying like, you know, hey, thank you for covering this. There was black guys were kicking off. White guys were kicking off. Everyone was angry, mate. This was not black versus white. Certainly it was a black issue, but it was a lot of people from other races saying, we support you. You're in our community. We're together and we're supporting each other. And it was really nice. Now immediately it's been turning into this race situation. So I'm very uncomfortable about the way it's being panned out in the media and I'm seeing people talk behind my back saying like oh Jake's just supportive of the protests and the riots he's an anarchist he's this he's that mate I was there you weren't and I was shoulder to shoulder with these boys and these women and I know what happened and I've got it on camera I literally I even filmed the initial charge where the police just run into the street and it's clear people are going what like what's going on sort of thing like I don't know, mate. It's very worrying to me, actually. I don't know what's going to happen, but seeing the way it's panning out is—it's mm, distressing. And I'm seeing otherwise, like normally nuanced journalists now crying because a bloody uh, a statue that was a statue of a slave uh, trader in Bristol, where there is a lot of black people live and a lot of anti-racist people live, there has been a, a statue to this slave trader who who imported like 84,000 slaves, many of which died en route because he didn't give a shit. And it got pulled down by protesters yesterday and thrown in the river. My opinion is good. Get it down. For years, and again, people say, well, it should be put in a museum. For 10 years, people in Bristol, this is what people ignore. If you do your research, you will know. For 10 years, people in Bristol have been campaigning saying, get that statue down Put it into a museum. It does not belong on the streets. Could you imagine being a black guy walking past and seeing in your own town where you were born and raised a statue to a guy that enslaved your people? That's not good. Do you know what I mean? That's outrageous. So they wanted to get rid of it. The council every single time refused to do it. So, so what? The people took it into their own hands, tore it down and they flinged it in the river. Get lost, mate. <laughs> like, it's gone. And now journalists are being very, oh, this is, you know, doing a lot of pearl clutching. This is outrageous. This is so terrible. Well, you're the old guard and you're, you're going out. Like, we're the younger people now and we see it for what it is. So I think tough luck to them, innit? it?
2: Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange.
0: Do you think... that this language of rioting and violence is being used to delegitimate protests, uh, you know, in America as well. I mean, this. And let me ask you a pairing question. I know that part of what you do is you have a network of people who are all independent journalists who look at this stuff. So one of the one of the types of language we've heard a lot about here is this uh, is this idea that it's either you know the violence is either caused by white supremacist you know antagonists or antifa, right? And that's those that the first few days it seemed like, especially of coverage in the U.S. was all about like. Which category of external agitators was it? And since then, it's felt like for maybe the last week or so, the protest leaders have been able to really tamp down mm. violence. So It's been harder to make that argument. But I'm just interested in your take again, and maybe maybe even contextualize this in like, you've seen protests around the world in different mm. contexts, and you've seen authorities responding to protests. Is this use of kind of the rioting language to delegitimate protests a technique that you've seen before? And is it happening again?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like the way the, the, the dialogue from Trump is almost identical to like the dialogue from Bashar al-Assad when he put down the, the legitimate protesters in Syria. It's similar to Erdogan in Turkey, who, you know, it's a totalitarian state. Any totalitarian states, very similar talk. You know, he's saying very similar things. I'm not saying America is a totalitarian state, but certainly the same techniques and the same dialogue is being used by Trump. It it's clear as day. And and also the liberal, and I keep saying this, I am not a a, a right wing guy. I'm the opposite. But the but the right wingers I, I kind of disregard them because I just think they're morons. But the, the liberal media, well not right wingers, like right wing, left wing, fine, whoever. I mean, I'm on about like the hard right nonsense, like, you know what I mean? But um mm-hmm. but 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 anyway, the kind of liberal trusted CNBC, all that kind of stuff. Immediately when they saw white people smashing things, instead of realizing, oh, wow, this isn't just about black and white. This is a community angered and fuming. Of course, white people are going to be fuming that you've just murdered an unarmed black man by a police officer. Why on earth wouldn't they? Unless you're like an absolute racist, why would you not be enraged by that horrific video? So a lot of, I know a lot of like white anarchists went out and started wrecking up the shop and throwing Molotovs and rocks at the police. Now, you know, immediately the liberal media says, wow, there's a far right agitators coming from out of state. Hilariously, the so-called leftist uh, AOC, you know, Ascario Cortez, or whatever you say it, she was immediately like, hmm, this is interesting. Sowing that divide from day one, sowing that divide of, oh, you know, like letting the protesters, so protesters I know from Friends in America on the ground were saying like, oh, oh, apparently there's infiltrators. And it turned out like they weren't like even the police had to kind of double back and say, "Oh, actually, we said they were out of state infiltrators and and antagonists, but actually when we arrested a lot of them they're not they're from Minneapolis, so that was like a very interesting tool which has been used for decades and decades. say that anyone that isn't obviously a part of a movement is you know is uh is is some kind of infiltrator and a and a kind of agitator also." you get these right-wing libertarian boogaloo boys right now there's a big faction of the boogaloo boys which are racist they are far right and they're frankly horrific but the boogaloo idea is not a cohesive movement it's a kind of lifestyle if you like and a kind of an ideology kind of like a fun ideology whatever and there's a hell of a lot of right wing libertarians but not racists who have come out to support the black lives matter protesters and said yeah we're with you. We don't have the same ideology necessarily, but we are against authoritarianism from the police and the government. And we are with you. And they've come out armed. And this is one funny thing that is quite an interesting aspect of the culture now. This hyper woke kind of hyper woke um, takeover of the left in America has kind of turned these these people into co intel pro of the government without without even realising it. So they're immediately saying, "Wow." There's a neo Nazis. Neo Nazis are coming out to disrupt, and it's like I spoke to some of the people that these people are calling neo Nazis, and they're libertarians, and they were genuine. They were like, "No, we're coming out to, you know, we don't understand, but we definitely understand the the language of anti authoritarianism. So we're coming out to make sure we can help them if needs be." What's wrong with that? <laughs> you know, like I don't get why that's a problem. So there's been a lot of skewing right now from both sides. The right wing element is, it's frankly, it's just so funny to me. You know, like. <laughs> the idea that like Antifa is like uh, responsible for the riots. Antifa is like, it's kind of an opinion and a choice, you know, it's not even a cohesive movement. The same way the Boogaloo boys isn't, which is ironic because, you know, both sides are screaming ideas onto the wrong thing. Um, and it's just so dumb, you know, like it's just, it's just, I think it really shows a level of racism within the society over there where people, certain people just cannot understand that someone from a different race can be angry that that person has been killed um, in an unfair manner. Do you know what I mean? Like, we don't struggle with that as much in the UK. Now, it's easy for me to say as a white man, blah, blah, but, like, we don't. We don't struggle from that as much. We're not – our police are not as racist. Our police are not as violent. But certainly we have empathy, and, you know, you would think you would understand. I mean, have you seen that video? He cries for his dead mother as he's being choked to death for nine minutes it's a straight up murder, man. Like I just, it really, it's angered me and really confused me, the response from a lot of people, you know. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it is, there's a lot of like Trump's rhetoric around this has been completely outrageous. The tweets, which are very thinly veiled, like incitement of violence, I think, you know. Um, but hey, that's Trump, you know, he... I don't like Trump. He's just so funny in the way that he's like a comic book character. But when it's things like this happen, it's like, shit, that's actually a really dangerous thing. It's not funny anymore.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, So there's a, I don't know if you follow him, but um, Ben Hunt and there's this company called Epsilon Theory, and basically what they do is they they use semantic analysis to track narratives in the media, and mm. so uh, effectively what they're interested in is like how are people talking about the thing, right? Not not the thing itself, but how are people talking about it and understanding it. Right. And uh, they did this they did this analysis, and they found that almost immediately when these protests started, both the left and the right in America were instantly trying to push this into a, a left right divide uh rhetoric right like to just basically map this onto the culture war in the exact same way when in fact to your point the just the sheer human agony of the the particular incitement in this case was enough to pop people out of those those political bubbles uh but the leadership on both sides is trying to push them back in maybe even subconsciously trying to push people back into that but that's that's the entire way that american politics is run is mm. as this sort of you know but i mean it's, a, it's it's Yeah. And listen, if if everyone is divided, the potential for actual systemic change and like, you know, removing of a of a system and a system Absolutely. of leaders that that almost no one likes is impossible, right? You have you have yeah. two techniques. You have divide and distract, and and the political fault lines are a divide. Another great example of this, going back to your point about the Boogaloo boys, is there was right when the maybe the first night or the second night of Minneapolis protests, there were a couple of guys who came out with uh, with guns and they were interviewed and they were guarding a liquor store. And, you know, there's a two minute interview. And if you watch the whole interview, what they say is, uh, we really support uh, everyone's right to protest. This is horrible, and there should be justice for George Floyd. Uh, but we don't support rioting, or we don't support looting. You know, so we're just we're here protecting. This guy was trying to protect it from looters himself, and so we're just here, kind of you know, out to make sure people are allowed to protest peacefully. And the New York Post uh, took like a tiny snippet of that and made the headline something like. Uh, rednecks out of uh, fighting looting or something like that right like completely miss the context of what that is it was actually uh Dimitri from hidden forces who pointed this out it was like the I most clear yeah the most clear example of someone uh of a publication just trying to map what was otherwise actually a politically confounding moment because it's complex and nuanced into a uh political validation of you know again the the divide that already existed um so i don't know it's it's a, it's a hard it's a hard thing to watch covered. I mean, I saw I saw you uh you tweet this morning that it's just basically impossible to wrap our heads around it right now. It's moving so fast from a from yeah. a just a, a coverage standpoint.
1: Yeah, my, my mate Ali, uh great reporter, Ali Winston, he's I was talking to him this morning on the phone and he said like uh he said the news cycle is on meth. <laughs> and it really made me laugh. And I was like, Yeah, man, like it's just so difficult. And i honestly like our news is becoming becoming um kind of Americanized in that sense as well um but it's it's just tiring i think even as like, i'm a journalist and this is my job like to do this and i'm just so tired already man it's just like uh i'm just tired of arguing with everybody and trying to explain that nuance does not mean uh bias you know that's another thing that's been lost like trying to explain and break something down so when i'm saying hi like this is what happened the police did this to us that's what sparked the clash oh you're biased like no <laughs> That's not bias. That's called explaining the situation, you know, and it's, it's all these buzzwords have seeped into the kind of common talk now. So it's like, Oh, that's a bias opinion, Jake. It's like, mate, I've literally told you what I saw with my eyes. It's not an opinion. It's a a blow for blow account of what happened. That's actually reporting. That is the opposite (laughs) of what you think it is. And just suddenly because it doesn't tee up with the way people want it to have gone, or what they want to believe—it's an opinion now. It's a bias now. So it's very difficult. When for me, you know, I'm very pessimistic about it. Well, I'll be honest, mate. Like, it's all too late. I think nothing can be saved in terms of like the cultural shift. Um, maybe over years, years and years, something might change. But I think we're in a it just turning into a dark age of like nuance. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Well, So let's, I want to shift maybe and, and take this sort of global. Um, so like I said, I was watching uh, the the documentary about frontliners again last night. I'd love you to explain maybe a little bit what frontliners are and and kind of what you learned while you were there, but it was effectively about Hong Kong. And one of the really interesting things was you were talking to one of these guys about uh, why they were out protesting. And he said, well, at first it was the extradition bill, right? Which was the mm-hmm. bill that would, uh, that that basically kind of kicked the whole thing off. Um, and he's like, but then the police Started ratcheting up the violence, and so all of a sudden it became about that as well. And I thought that was interesting, just in the light of these protests, which are clearly the the, the spark was very clear uh, and very pertinent, and, and it had a lot to do with you know that specific video and just how agonizing it is. Mm. But now, the the more that they go on, the the greater the number of issues are kind of wrapped up in this. Um, you know, I mean, and I guess I'd love to hear about your experience in Hong Kong and you know what you, what you found, what what people were allowed. To for and and you know particularly in light of seeing china continue to uh to kind of try try further and further to absorb you know hong kong back into the system you know we've seen major moves over that over the last couple of weeks
1: yeah yeah man yeah so i was in uh hong kong in october where me and a uh, cameraman works with popular front luke pierce we went over there and we filmed it and we had very good access to the frontliners and the frontliners are basically it's not a movement or a specific group it's the people from the protest who kind of go the extra mile, they go to the front to fight with the police, right? They're the guys throwing the Molotovs, they're the guys risking their lives, they're the guys throwing rocks, they're the they're the people, the hardcore of the hardcore, if you like, you know? So I was most interested in them because for me, you know, that's the heart of the conflict, right? That's or at least the resistance to the conflict, I guess. So we went out there and we was filming with these uh, you know, the the frontliners. We met many of them, we interviewed them, very nice young men, like almost all young men, there were women as well, but the ones we spoke to, almost all young men. And, you know, they they were basically forming like what would be the kind of the 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 baby steps of what would be a militia should something turn into a war. It was like that, you know. They, they had walkie-talkies, they had tactics they they had groups but it wasn't one specific group it was just this is our group there's five guys that know each other we'll be frontliners and we'll fight this bit oh there's a group of frontliners we'll talk to them figure out where they're going right so it wasn't it was like a decentralized and they were fighting authoritarianism from China. Now, anyone that, you know, I mean, it's a fact that China is a brutally authoritarian country. I mean, look what they did to the Muslim Uyghurs. Look at their insane social point score system. Look at the way they spy on people. Look at what they, they you know, you can get arrested for calling the government Winnie the Pooh. Like, it's outrageous. It's an undeniably authoritarian country Um, and a very powerful one at that. So obviously, you know, since British colonialism kind of left Hong Kong, to China after however many years, I forget exactly now, like 50 years or something. It's coming closer to the date in I think in the next 10 years or something where China will be able to fully absorb Hong Kong. In the recent years, China has been trying harder and harder to speed that up. They've been imposing laws. They have basically been eroding the autonomous status that Hong Kong has right now. Uh, Well, they've lost it now, unfortunately. Um, But that's what was happening. And these young men and women were like, we're not having this. We are not, we have lived free we have had, I mean, it's not an ideal society. I'm, I'm not particularly fond of Hong Kong. It's it's just like hyper capitalism, like shops everywhere, Gucci this, Gucci that, lots of metal and glass. But it is free. You know, it is free. Um, it's not fair, perhaps, but it is at least free. You know, I, I personally believe being free, even if you're in a bad situation, is better than being in a bad situation and not being able to be free. So anyway, so so they're trying to get free. And, you know, they fought tooth and nail, man. They fought so hard. And I I think a lot of them knew they weren't going to win. But for me, and I've seen this a lot with conflicts, there's something important about rebelling for the sake of showing that you will. And now a lot of people think that's futile, but you can't just be walked on for the sake of, I don't know, your soul, for the sake of the soul of the community. You sometimes have to fight back against authoritarianism. And a lot of these young men and women knew that they had to just fight, even though they probably weren't going to win. They were appealing to America and the UK, please help us. That's why they had the flags out. You know, they they were saying like, hey, please help us. Um, obviously, the UK, which should help them because we had this deal. But, you know, my, my country's government is, is appalling right now. So they did nothing um, and they did nothing before. Um, and, you know, that's that's what it was. So they ended up losing this fight now. And now they're all going to, they're all being crippled under like, they're going to be slowly crippled under Chinese authoritarianism. I think what it's been three weeks, maybe since China kind of brought in this illegal bill, um, literally carried people out of the legislature, legislator council, whatever it's called, the LegCo, they call it, literally dragged people out uh, that were opposing this new law by security. They took them away by their, picked up their hands and feet and took them out Passed this new law where it basically just gives China all this power um it was the what 70th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre or whatever whatever anniversary it is I forget um they banned any celebrations of it already in Hong Kong which is unheard of um it's now illegal to like desecrate the Chinese flag it's just like they're just very quickly sweeping over um so yeah man a very very sad situation some very brave young men and women that fought there but the, the fact they even the fact they even fought. Who knows? Maybe that will inspire guerrillas in five years. Who knows? Maybe they when when the Chinese authoritarianism has completely crushed Hong Kong freedom, maybe they'll say, "Hey, remember those kids that did that? We already know techniques." And you know what people in Hong Kong are like? They're so unbelievably inventive, and like their ingenuity is unbelievable. So straight away they were going on the internet and getting tactics from all different protests from across the world and using them against the police. And they started sharing them. There was, a, you know, there's clashes in Lebanon right now. They started writing up on Reddit like things that they'd worked out that work as like small scale guerrilla tactics to fight the cops and and they were sharing them with lebanese protesters and there was these banners like solidarity between the lebanese protesters and the hong kong protesters iraqi protesters were like we like them guys they shared some information like the whole thing was like amazing you know and it's for me that there is that rebellious streak where people are just saying no it's always important just for the culture of the world (laughs) i really believe that like and it's not rebellion for rebellion's sake, as in, like, fuck you, Dad. It's rebellion for the sake of saying we will not be walked on or we won't go down quietly. And I do think that's important. I think people cannot be crushed like that. You shouldn't... You cannot be allowed to be crushed like that, you know? If you can fight back, do it, you know? And and these kids, they're not armed. There's no guns in Hong Kong. Apart from the police, they have guns. They shot a few people. Somehow no one died from the shooting. Um, but, yeah, and it, it's like they did everything they could to fight back and it failed. I do think... I. I speculate that some of the most hardcore frontliners that are not in prison now will end up doing something maybe someone will make a bomb you know like maybe it will become literally guerrilla like a militant group when hong kong is finally swallowed up by china i can really see that happening um but until then it's just people getting arrested man and it's just it's a real shame you know it's a real shame the world has done nothing to really help them i guess you know it's not up to the world i guess to police it but When it happens in China, it's going to come to Taiwan, and it's uh, Hong Kong. Sorry, it's going to come to Taiwan, and it's just—I don't know. It's a real shame, you know. It's a real mess.
0: Yeah, I think the uh, the the world right now—it's an interesting question for how to how to deal with China. You know that, that hasn't really been engaged with for a really long time. Uh, actually, on Friday, I had uh, an old friend of mine who I went to college with who's uh, is a, a, spent a lot of time on China-U.S. relations give kind of the history of the U.S.-China relationship. And the interesting thing that you see is it's uh, basically for the last 20 years... It's been kind of kicking the can ball, kicking the ball or, or kicking the can down the road a little bit because you know George Bush came in thinking that he was going to try to figure out what their actual approach was going to be, and then he got distracted, you know, by the Middle East, by Afghanistan, or well, got distracted. Might be a little bit too generous a <laughs> yeah, to term. Made himself they, distracted. They shifted, shifted <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shifted shifted their focus elsewhere. And the Obama administration came in and they had this intention to rebalance focus and put more focus on China, but they did, but without like knowing what their strategy was. And so now we're left with a situation where. Uh, there's kind of widely recognized human rights abuses but this incredible global economic interdependence which is a a a real serious question and you know every time that something like hong kong comes up it creates a new front in that and uh, yeah it's it's a, i think it's it's hard to see a situation around the world that has more uh potential more potential to shape the 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 globe uh, in some ways than than that than that region
1: yeah they just i mean I don't know how to say it, but it does seem like the world is just kind of like... China is kind of playing on Russia's rules. And I'm not like a guy that's like in love with the West and thinks everything the West does is good. Because, you know, certainly I've done most of my career in the Middle East. Like, I know that what the West has done in the Middle East is often not good. But at the end of the day, like, you can't just then go, oh, well, let's just let Russia and China do what they want. Because there is always going to be a Mm -hmm. force bullying the world, no matter what, you know, it's always going to happen and when you just you know with trump in office i think that's been an absolute boon for like um china and russia because they realize now that like right we can just get away with it man like they can just play all these silly games and uh and i don't think like it's all on trump's doorstep like you said about obama and bush like obama's middle east policies were like laughable they're so laughable and they added to a hell of a lot of chaos in syria you know like And also like so many dead children from like Obama led um, uh, drone strikes in Yemen, for example, you know, so already that was already very just a mess. Now Trump comes in and is just like, it just tips the world upside down, you know, and I just think China and Russia realize like we can get away with it. And like Europe is completely limp, you know, (laughs) like Europe is like, please stop it. Like we will sanction you. It's like, come on, like, if you don't think they like these are countries, right, that don't really care about their people. Now, this is clear from, you know, like a guy the other day was like protesting, I think, on his own in Moscow, like singing some song, arrested, he's been in jail for 10 days, you know, like China murder, murdering, like Uyghurs, like putting them in concentration camps, destroying like ancient mosques, um, like, you know, you know what I mean, destroying any dissent, they don't care about their people. So it's like, what are you going to do? You're going to sanction them. Well, the people in power who who do care about themselves, they care about power, they're always going to be rich. They're always <laughs> going to find ways around it. So I don't think that the sanctions really work. Now, I'm no economist, and I'm probably sure there are economists who scream hearing this, but I just really don't think the world works on that kind of checks and balance basis anymore. It works on, like, kind of reactionary um, feelings and, you know, who who can kind of dick swing the biggest. I think we're in that kind of scenario now. China's very quietly just everywhere. Like they're all over Africa. You know, they're like, they're essentially kind of doing a colonization of certain cities in Africa. Um, it's just mad. It's just mental. Like, and I just think, you know, we kind of set ourselves up to be shot in the foot because, like you said, so much manufacturing is over there and we rely so heavily on it. So, you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's just what are you going to do in it? Like what, what are we going to do? I don't know. I do worry. Like I think a war might break out, man. Like not like a world war, but I, I can see like, an out of left field war coming where you're just like, whoa, what like that country is fighting them. Like, and it will be something to do with some weird Chinese or Russian influence. In fact, right now there's clashes on the border in this area in India between the Chinese military and the Indian military. And there've been like small scale clashes because China's just moving into their land. And they're like, what are you doing? And China's just like basically saying, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? And it's, it is deescalating right now because neither side really wants the war, but that's, we're just seeing a lot more of that stuff. I mean, look at Ukraine, that still hasn't been solved. Russia, just all over there still. It's just it's just a mess, man. I think we're in this weird time where after something goes on for a bit and the news cycle shifts, it almost doesn't matter anymore to a certain amount of people. And the governments that want to do these bad things, America included, recognise that and they know that they can get away with things they couldn't before. I don't really want to, I'm no, I'm no psychologist or anything, I don't know why, but it just does seem to be partly because of the way things are covered, the way the access to information we have now, I don't know, man, it's just almost like the technology got so good, so efficient, so rapid that it was able to be co-opted by like, you know, like horrific companies like Facebook and other devil companies, I don't know who like scumbags like Amazon and, you know, abusing workers, but it doesn't matter because you get your stuff. And you know, you know what I mean? And it's kind of like, I sound like some, like, really played out, like, kind of uh, Tyler Durden type <laughs> now, but it is, it is becoming a reality. It, it is becoming a reality, you know? And I don't think, even people I knew that were, like, so-called normies, right, are even saying things to me now, like, friends, and I'm like, yeah, man, you're right. And they're like, hang on, why is Amazon paying no tax in our country when they abuse our workers so much? Yep, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not Tyler Durden, and that's just the reality. So it's, it's a worrying time, I think.
0: Yeah. And I think the, the the other part of the worry is that people get exhausted, right? People feel yes. like having to care all the time about everything and having to, I mean, it's just, it's exhaust, you, it's understandable why people react by just kind of tuning out in some ways, because it's really hard to to look at everything. You know, it's hard to understand how everything fits together and how these are, you know, it's, it's appealing to have easy explanations that blame someone else, you know? and And I think that you're right that I don't know that I've ever seen a time where people are more skeptical of the explanations being given by by authorities on on whatever side, but at the same time, there's a huge gap between being skeptical and knowing what to do next. You know, I mean, we're even seeing this now. Bring it back to BLM. like it seems to be consolidating from a narrative perspective around you know the action that people want is defund the police, right? And I know you tweeted about this uh, mm-hmm. yesterday, I think as well. Like you know, but it's like what 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 are the outcomes that we're actually looking for once we've gone out and agitated? You know, it's a uh, it, it's really difficult.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I get the defund thing to a degree. Like, I think they have way too much money. They have way too much power. They've got, like, military vehicles. I mean, mate, like, look at these protests. Like, immediately police are gassing, tear gassing peaceful protesters. I've seen, I've been documenting it as well. There's been outrageous behavior from the U.S. police. Um, And I think that in itself is an argument to say, hey, something serious needs to be done here. Um, me personally, I, I don't believe that I'm not a believer that a revolution is coming in any sense. Um, if I have my own perfect world, I'd like to live in a kind of autonomous community where you know, your neighbors and everybody has to pitch in, otherwise the community falls apart. So everybody is kind of forced to look after each other in a way, you know, like not forced, but like, if you want to live nice, you have to look after each other. And I think a community police force in terms of someone that goes around answering problems, that can't be dealt with elsewhere. So, you know, if your child gets kidnapped, you need some group that can go, let's go and get them. But when you've got people sending, like, people to prison for having, like, half an ounce of weed or whatever, like, you know, I've been pulled over twice this month because of, like, dumb stuff on my car. Like, in reality, it's just the police are just out there looking to get people. Do you know what I mean? And I don't know. Personally, I've had a lot of bad experiences with the police, even in the UK. And, you know, we call them bully boys a lot of the time. And frankly, that's what it feels like. They feel like they're just out to bully you a lot of the time. Now, sure, there's a ton of like like middle class kind of white people that can just, or any really race, I guess, will say, well, no, I've always had great experiences with the police. Well, that's fine for you, but there's so many people that hasn't. You can't just disregard a whole element of society because you had good experiences with them. And, you know, they people say, well, if you're not doing anything bad, well, why do you care? Well, the the parameters of what is bad and isn't bad literally depends on officer to officer and the government can change them rules at any moment. So I really think that, you know, this is also a sign now. So people want to say, oh, well, the police have been good to me. Well, now you're seeing the people that the police weren't good to and you're seeing what they do and they're kicking up a fuss. And in my opinion, I think it's good to be kicking up a fuss. I also don't believe, unfortunately, that peaceful protests do very much. I actually... That's a sad reality. I don't really think that they do much at all. It's very, I mean, the only the only recent time I can think of when an actually genuine like, kind of peaceful protest changed anything was the there was essentially an Armenian revolution, what, last year or the year before? Um, but that only really changed when a load of the, the Armenian troops burst their barracks. They kicked off the gates, basically, and just ran into the streets. And went hand in hand with protesters and said, we're behind them. The government is not, we are not going to stop um, the protesters. We're on the side of the people. So you could argue that that wasn't even really non-violent because the threat of violence got very serious for the government there because the military started going against him. So I just don't think that, I don't know, man. It's it's not really up to me to decide what is and isn't, isn't like worth using or whatever, but just from a journalist's point of view for someone who has covered all these conflicts and revolutions all over the world, the peaceful, the peaceful way is just not really going to scare power. Whatever the power is, wherever it is, it's not going to scare them. And I don't think they move until they're scared. And they either get so scared that they leave and go, well, forget this, or you end up with you know horrific situations like Syria. Um, but there's the that's the that's one war. But then there's also like the battle of like grinding mundane authoritarianism that is just never it's never checked when that's left unchecked it creates a very dangerous precedent and i argue that that's what we're seeing now with china to the kind of nth degree um i don't know i just i think you're right what people said about being exhausted though people have run out of empathy they've run out of caring i guess that i don't know what that is maybe i've never seen people so un uh, empathetic in my life it's just apathy everywhere i'm seeing a lot of that which is sad i get it people can't care about all things all the time But it's really even on a local level, I'm seeing it at times. And it's like, Jesus Christ, like, how do we get to that? I I, I don't know. Maybe that was always there, but I'm certainly noticing it a lot more now.
0: Yeah, well, for people who, I mean, I I don't think we're going to solve that one just yet. But I I will say that, you know, if nothing else, uh, the one positive thing is, you know, I actually do find a lot of uh, optimism or room for optimism in uh, in, in this sort of shift towards independent media, independent journalism, because it creates at least a context for people who do have that mental space, that mental bandwidth, you know, or the privilege of that to uh, learn more. So for people who are, who do have bandwidth left, what are the, uh, are there other uncovered or underreported situations that you think are uh, worth paying attention to, right? People who are who are saying like, hey, I want to understand uh, what's going on around the world and, and kind of not hide my head in the sand. What are places that are are just not being covered that are important?
1: That's a good question. There's a lot of like low-scale conflicts, which with Popular Front, we cover a lot of it. You know, I, I say we cover the, the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflicts. So there's loads of conflicts going on right now that you just don't hear about. Um, they're always interesting because I think, how do you explain it? I guess like they always have, when you look at these smaller conflicts, you realize how other countries... Uh, playing a role you know so for example there's a there's an ongoing conflict very low scale between Armenia and Azerbaijan there's an area called uh, Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh as they call it and you know Russia has a military base in Azerbaijan they have a military base in Armenia I believe they're selling arms to both sides Turkey is completely invested in Azerbaijan. Russia will probably back Armenia, but then they also have ties with Turkey. So if that really kicks off, you see how then the, like, the world is actually way smaller than you realize. Like Geopolitically, a lot of these conflicts are because of other bigger countries. Do you know what I mean? Or at least the other countries mm-hmm. have like a role in them, have a stake in them. And then I think when you can understand that, you sometimes, for me at least, it makes other conflicts a little bit clearer. It's like, all oh, right, I get why they're doing that in Libya because they're doing this in that country. And it's a similar kind of... I think you can understand what the country's outlook is judging by what conflicts they're getting into, you know? And it's not just business often. It isn't just all business. Sometimes there's a lot of other things that go with it, you know? So that's definitely something worth doing, looking at these uh, things. But one thing I would say is, like, in terms of mainstream media, like, it, it is reliable to a degree still, And what I do, there's just certain journalists that I will say like, right, he's good, she's good. You know, I I think there's a lot of good New York Times journalists and then there's a lot of unbelievably, unbelievably bad ones as well. That doesn't mean I, oh, I hate the New York Times. It means they do some very good work and they employ some very clever people who are very good at their job. So that's good. So I'll look at them and I'll follow them and I'll look at their work. Uh, And there's even some people on the right wing, like what we consider right wing media, where you're like, okay, that guy makes a point. You have to like take it on board and and so on. But at the end of the day, people, I understand that people don't have time, you know, people really don't have the time um, to do all that. You know, it's like people say, oh, no one ever checks the news. They don't really read up. They don't, they're not nuanced. Well, a lot of people are doing like 60 hour work weeks, you know, and like busting their ass in like in a, in a factory or a warehouse or they're tired or they're doing, you know, and they come home and they've just about got time to see their kids they're lucky if they read any news and then they're going back to bed and they're doing it all over again. So you can't really expect people to be like, you can't have a go at people all the time for being ignorant. And it's not even ignorant sometimes. It's just, they don't have the time. So in that respect, I think journalists as well can like ease off on people a little bit. Don't be so shocked that people don't know about things. You know, we work within a very s- small bubble actually. So I think maybe be empathetic to just people as well just understand that people sometimes need things explaining to them and there is a reason why people unfortunately are starting to believe in conspiracy theories over facts and all of that it's not worth being angry at it is what i'm saying sometimes you have to just try and understand it from the perspective of why they've ended up there um and oftentimes it's because they don't have time or they don't trust the news or it's too boring i don't know man it's it's a (laughs) it's a tricky one but you know you have to really try and understand them Um, But other than that, I would say definitely look at independent media, but don't be fooled. When some people say I'm independent media, often what they are is just projecting their own fears and opinions. There's a lot of like talking heads on YouTube that kind of call themselves news. And when you look at it, it's like, well, that's not the news at all. They're just getting outraged about something, you know, don't be outraged, be informed. That's what I think.
0: I think that's a great note to end on. uh, And uh, certainly, uh, a really important set of recommendations for a really tough time. Uh, Jake, it's been awesome talking with you for a while. Where can people find you and Popular Front if they want to learn more about uh, a regular conflict and, and just the world at large?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, mate. And sorry if I was ranting, but these are very... <laughs> very it's ranty pretty- times. It's- yeah, <laughs> yeah, these are very contentious times. Um, yeah, so if you look me up on Twitter, uh, Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N, That's my personal account where I'm posting most of my stuff. Um, And then if you look for Popular Front, so you can go to the website, which is popularfront.co. Everything is there. Or just search Popular Front in the podcast app. You'll find us. uh, I almost guarantee if you like this show, you will like Popular Front. Um, We don't take ourselves too seriously, but we do report on serious stuff. So check us out.
0: All right. Awesome, Jake. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you, mate. Appreciate that.
0: One of the things that struck me about that conversation is Jake's defense of traditional media, even in the context of moving out and doing a different path. He clearly has issues with both one, the way that corporate business model influence changes what media can cover structurally, and two, the way that media seems to shift on a dime to accommodate their opinions to popular conventional wisdoms. But what he doesn't say is that mainstream media is a hopeless morass that's just a tool of financiers or governments, he doesn't say that at all. In fact, he points out that mainstream media is, like any organization, full of individuals who may or may not do good work, and it's important to understand those individuals and looking at it. Now, of course, that's hard. It's why it's easier in some ways to wrap our heads now around an independent voice, that we know their perspective coming into it. But I think it's a really important reminder to not paint things with such a broad brushstroke, Jake has every incentive to say, screw mainstream media. You should only be focused on independents like me. But that's not what he's saying. In fact, he's warning against shifting our perspective too aggressively from mainstream to independents, pointing out just how kooky independents can be as well. So I think it reflects the larger complexity of the way that Jake approaches the world and reflects part of why I wanted to have him here. Anyways, guys, uh, let me know what you thought about this conversation. Like I said, I know it wasn't necessarily a, an easy one, but I think it's an important part of the story of. The world happening around us. I think that without understanding this context of social and political unrest, we can't really understand larger patterns of economic and power change, which I think is kind of the core of what Bitcoin is about. Anyways, thanks for listening as always, and uh, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.